0: Good morning, church. Some of you have noticed that I'm uh, moving a little slowly. Uh, This morning I hurt my back yesterday, and if you've been through that, you know, it just uh, doesn't cooperate uh, for a few days. And so um, uh, if you see me wince, uh, it's okay if I don't move, so I may be pretty stationary. Actually, if, if you've been waiting to rush the stage and slap me on the face, this would be the morning. I'm very immobile. So, uh, so Lizzie Snyder, here's your chance. Who am I kidding? She can't even reach me. <laughs> oh, sorry, that was too easy. All right. I want you to imagine with me uh, this morning that you get a phone call this week uh, from a man who says he works for a publisher. And this uh, publisher uh, wants to publish your autobiography. You've been nominated by friends, family, coworkers, acquaintances to write your life story, and they want to help you write it and publish it. What would your reaction be to that opportunity? Most of us would probably say, I live a pretty ordinary life. Who in the world would want to hear my story, right? But let's say that that you decide, you know, I'm going to take this opportunity, maybe just if nothing else for my friends and family, I'm going to write my life story. What version of your story would you write? There's several different ways you could go there, right? You could write more, you know, documentary style, of just the facts, you know, here's you know, where I came from, here's where I was born, here's how I was raised, here's where I went to school, here's my family, here's my, my education, my work life. Maybe you would choose to be inspirational, and you would focus on, on your successes and the highlights of your life and, and all that you've achieved and your accomplishments Maybe you would choose to write a more authentic account and not shy away from your weaknesses, from your sins, from your failures. How you write your story almost says as much as the story itself. I wonder where would God fit in your story? Where would your faith fit Would it be just another chapter next to your education and your work life? Or would it be unnecessary to have a separate chapter for your faith because it is so interwoven in every area of your life that would be redundant? How would you write your life story? I I mentioned that this morning because in a way, we are beginning an autobiography in Exodus chapter 2. God is the author of Scripture through the Holy Spirit, but he used human writers, and we believe that Moses was the writer of the first five books of the Bible. And in Exodus chapter 2, Moses starts writing his own story. And I think we'll see, as is always the case in the Scriptures, His life story is an authentic account. He does not shy away from his weaknesses, his failures. It's one of the things that gives the Bible uh, authenticity and credibility. Because its main figures are are painted uh, clearly. I think we will learn a lot as we see the life of Moses unfold here through the book of Exodus. Exodus a lot that will encourage us, a lot that will challenge us. But it will show us another example of how God deals with his people. And so we're going to read Exodus uh, 2 if you want to turn there in your Bibles. A little easier to find than in some text, uh, second book of the Bible, page 45 in your pew Bible. And we are going to read the first 22 verses of Exodus 2 as we begin the life account of this major biblical figure, Moses, the figure that will dominate the next several thousand years because of the Mosaic law. Starting in verse one, now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son and when she saw that he was a fine child she hid him for three months. And when she could hide him no longer she took for him a basket made, made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Of course this is under the, the, the judgment of Pharaoh that any, any Hebrew boy was to be thrown in the Nile. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it and when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you prince or ruler and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When the Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. He sat down by a well. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came and drew water and filled the troughs to feed, to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Uriel, He said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, and where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses, his daughter, Zipporah, She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Let's pray together and ask for God's help to understand this text. God, we are grateful for your word and for these accounts that you've given of your people and how you have worked through them and protected them and prepared them. We pray that the word will be clear this morning, we will be encouraged by it and challenged by it for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. The main point of this text is something that we see through all of the Bible and something that applies, I think, to each and every one of us, and it's this, God preserves and prepares his people to accomplish his purposes. We see an amazing example of that here in Exodus chapter 2. And so the most basic of outlines this morning, we're going to see God's preservation and God's preparation of Moses. And then we'll see how those things apply even to us. As we look at God's preservation of Moses, it starts with his life. God preserves his life in an amazing way. He is under the decree of Pharaoh that any Hebrew boy that is born is to be thrown in the Nile. And so Moses is born under very dark, as as Toby said last week, a very dark time. The people were wondering, has God forgotten us? What about his promises? Very dark, dire circumstances. You wonder what Moses' mother must have thought. you imagine her coming to the realization that she is pregnant? The range of emotions she must have gone through. Her her mother's heart surely leaped for joy. And yet surely she had to fight fear. I mean, best case, it's a girl and she's a slave for her, the rest of her life. Worst case, it's a boy and, and he's, under, he's, already, he's already dead. He's already under the sentence of death. What was it like for Moses' m- mother? Wondering... What in the world, what kind of world am I bringing my son or daughter into? I can tell you I had those questions 25 years ago when my first child was born. And that, and that was in the mid-90s, which now seems like you know a lifetime ago in terms of the, the cultural and moral decline since then. I can't imagine for children being born now, surely you struggle with that. What? What kind of world is my child going to face? Well, God gives us stories like this to encourage us. Can you imagine a worse scenario to be born into than Moses was born into, and yet he was safe in the hands of his creator because God had a purpose for him? We need to hold on to that for our children. We cannot be ruled by fear and worry and doubt over what may face them. We need to trust in the God that sustains and prepares and preserves. Be encouraged by that in the life of Moses. Imagine his mother, the baby is born, and she hears it's a boy. What is she thinking? Well, I, we know what she's thinking. She's like, I, I, I'm not going down without a fight. And she takes this baby, and she hides it for for three months. I suppose if she was caught, she could just say, well, how am I supposed to know it's a boy? I'm not a biologist. Somehow she knew. I don't know. She knew it was a boy. And she hid the boy. And she ends up putting him in... An ark, the word there is ark, and covering it with pitch, which is the, the same words that are used in Genesis chapter 6 when um, Noah built the ark. Same picture of deliverance in the midst of destruction. And she puts him in this ark, and they place him in the bulrushes of the reeds by the river. Technically, she put her boy in the river. And, and make no mistake, this was not an accident. She put him somewhere where he would be protected. And most uh, scholars believe in looking at this that um, this, the location that he was placed was no accident as well. They likely knew this was where, near where the, the Egyptian women would come down to the river to wash. They were counting on the compassion of a woman's heart to save their baby. I I, I guarantee you they didn't put him in the the bull rushes where the men came down. There's something about, something special about a woman's compassion and mercy for a little baby. I'd love to do an experiment here uh, this morning. If I could hang a camera from the ceiling and bring one of the newborn babies to the center here after the service and wait for them to cry and then, and then watch what happens, right? The women would move towards the danger <laughs> and the men would wander away, right? There, there's, there's something special that God has put in the heart of a woman. For a a baby. This is why it's so important for us to support life centers and crisis pregnancy centers, right? That do ultrasounds for mothers who are considering abortion to see that baby. Because, I I don't know what the percentage is, it is an extremely high percentage that once a mother sees her baby, it's over. She's not, there's no way she can go through with it. God made in the image of God even those who don't know Jesus made in the image of God there is a a heart of compassion and that compassion saved this baby. And so uh, Moses' sister pretty clever she's like oh you found a baby I bet you you need a woman uh, to nurse her I know just the one. And then Moses' mother gets to wean and raise her own son and get paid to do it. Not a bad gig. It's worth noting here that this little baby, helpless baby, was saved from the most powerful man on the planet at this point, Pharaoh. And he wasn't saved through the edict of a king, He wasn't saved through the might of an army or a warrior. He wasn't saved through the the skilled oratory of a statesman. He was saved through the faith of a mom, through the courage of a sister, through the compassion of an Egyptian woman. We see these kind of stories woven all through the scriptures. These are things that Pharaoh would have considered foolishness or weakness. But that's how how God works, right? Paul tells, the Christians tells us in the New Testament that God uses things that the world thinks are foolish and weak to confound the strong and the wise. If you're here this morning, you think, man, I'm just as ordinary a person as there can be. How can God use me? Well, you are exactly the type of person that God uses. There was nothing extraordinary about these women. But their faith, their courage, their compassion, God used that to save Moses. And and save Moses, who would become the deliverer for his people setting the stage for Israel, and then out of Israel, the Messiah. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things to accomplish his purpose. And so remember that. This week, moms, when you're at home and you're spending most of the time with the kids, thinking, you know, am I making any difference? Is, do I even know what I'm doing some days? It's worth it. Be faithful. Be courageous. Be compassionate. God is using that to preserve and prepare your children for his purpose. The second thing, and I think we'll take the second and third together here, God preserves not only his life but his heart and his heritage. Or if you might say his faith and his identity. Moses gets raised by his family for the first few years, and we don't know exactly how long that was. Some say three to five years, some say longer. But it was long enough that there was a foundation built there that would serve him for the rest of his life. He stayed there for a few years and it was given over to uh, to Pharaoh's daughter to be raised as an Egyptian. But Moses never forgot who he was and where he came from and who his God was. When God comes to, know, or to Moses in chapter 3 here next week, we'll see that he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses already knew why that was important. There's a few passages in the New Testament that give us some context to what's happening here in Exodus 2. And one of those is in Acts 7 when Stephen is kind of giving his history lesson before he is uh, martyred. And he says this about Moses when he was 40 years old. Moses was 40 years old at this point. It came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. He knew who his people were. He knew who his brothers were. All those years later, in in Hebrews 11, another passage that gives us some context here, in the hall of faith, it says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. That's that's amazing. A few years in the the beginning set the foundation for the rest of his life. Moms and dads of young children, be encouraged by that. Again, all those days where you struggle and you go through the same routine and you, you wonder if you're making any difference. It's worth it. The foundation you are laying in these early years for your children will serve them the rest of their lives and we need to hold on to that. We need to remember that. The effort it took to get here this morning, which I know is no small effort with with little ones, it's worth it. You're laying a foundation that will serve them the rest of their lives. And if your kids are long gone out of the house And never give up on them. Never stop praying for them. Pray that that foundation that you laid for your children will continue to bear fruit. And it is never too late for them to come back or for them to be saved. God is preserving Moses for his purpose and he's also preparing him. As we look at God's preparation, three, three ways that God was preparing Moses. The first way was in his, what I'll call his background. This is something that Moses had absolutely no control over. Moses was a Hebrew. And he was a pure Hebrew. He was a Levite times two. I mean, his mom and dad both were through uh, Levi, who was you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 sons of Jacob, one of those was Levi. And so he's a pure descendant of Abraham, which would be important. And not only that, he's from Levi, which at this point in history wasn't that important, but later on would give him credibility because that would be the line of the priest. And Moses would become the mediator between God and the people. And so God was preparing him, even in his lineage. For what he would have him to do. But of course, he wasn't just a Hebrew, he was an Egyptian and a royal one at that. A prince of Egypt, which would give him credibility and access to the Egyptians and to Pharaoh that no Hebrew would ever have. That's going to be important in what God is going to call Moses to do. This dual nature. If Moses wasn't the most unique person on the earth, he was certainly the most unique person in Egypt. Nobody else could do and had the background of what Moses had. God was preparing him to do a unique task, a unique purpose. We see this in other places in the Bible. Joseph Joseph had a similar story of he was a a descendant of Jacob, sold into slavery, ends up becoming second in power in Egypt, That unique, you know, um, background that he had prepared him to save his people, which would save uh, Israel, which again would save the line of the Messiah. We see Daniel, who was a a Hebrew, he rose to power in Babylon and in the Chaldeans, which prepared him for the unique things that God would have him to do. Even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, Jew of all Jews, God was preparing him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. God prepares his people to accomplish his purpose. And that's true of each and every one of us. That's not just for these biblical icons. The second way that he is preparing him is in his education. This is again where Acts 7 gives us a little bit more information that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And and look at a few things here that that Moses would have been trained in. And this would have been the best education on the planet at this point in history. Here's what he was taught, and here's what he learned from the Egyptian education system, especially being under the royal system. He would have learned about leadership. He would have learned about administration, economics, military matters, agriculture, diplomacy, among many other things. All of these, if you know what Moses is going to do, not only in delivering Israel, but taking them out and then being, leading them in the, the wilderness and eventually to the promised land, all of these things would be necessary to know. And God is using human means to accomplish his purpose by putting Moses under this education that he would have never gotten if he was just a Hebrew. God's preparing his people, to accomplish his purpose. And Moses' education was not done when he left the classroom, as you well know. There are some things you can't, you can't learn in the classroom, and God was going to teach Noah many things through his banishment. Moses sees one of his own people being beaten, and the, when it says he sees it, the word there means he, he, he didn't just see it, he felt it. He was moved to action. He took this personally. And uh, in, again, in Acts 7, it says this, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He thought he was doing God's work here by striking this man down. And this next verse is really interesting. It gives us a little bit of insight into what, Noah, or what Moses was thinking here. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Moses is already starting to see himself as the deliverer here. Moses, when he takes this action against the Egyptian, it appears by what this is saying, he kind of thinks this is going to start something big. That God is beginning to deliver his people. Maybe his people would rise up against the Egyptians. Moses kind of had a plan, he was going to start it, and so he's trying to force the issue, take matters into his own hands. This is not God's plan. It does not go as Moses planned. And not only do his people uh, not appreciate what he's done, they actually reject him. Who made you ruler and judge over us? Even this rejection was preparing Moses he would be rejected many more times by the people of Israel. And so he leaves. Pharaoh finds out. And he dwells in a place called Midian, which may seem like an a unusual place for Moses to go. Because you remember a couple weeks ago when Chad spoke, you know, the Midianites were enemies of Israel. And, and that, was, that was many, many years later. At this point, the Midianites were actually descendants of Abraham. It would have been, not been difficult for Moses to fit in with that group of people at this point. And so he's, he's, it says he dwell, He sits down by a well. What, what that really means is if there was a well there, there was a community there. Because uh, they went where the water was. And so he's in this little community and these women come to the well and they're harassed by the shepherds. And again, you see Moses, the deliverer, he comes and he, he uh, delivers these women, and he serves them, watering their flocks. And that draws the attention of their father, who's called Ruel here, and later he's called Jethro. And he says, bring him in. And he brings Moses into his family. This was part of of Moses' preparation. Because now he's, he's brought into this family, he becomes a shepherd again, this will come in handy when he's leading a group of stubborn, wandering people through the wilderness. And not only that, there's just don't miss this little footnote at the bottom. That he becomes, he he gets a wife from Ruel, Zipporah, and he has a child. This is not an insignificant footnote to this story. God is using his role as husband and father to prepare him further. Marriage, I've often said that that marriage uh, is a magnifying glass that God will use to expose things in your heart that you didn't even know were there. How many of you can can relate to this? If you've been married, I've been married 34 years. I know what you're saying, I can already hear my wife deserves a trophy, I get it. Uh, uh, I, I, I just say I'm the trophy husband, uh, but uh, I'm okay with that. Um, but marriage, I, I can remember this when we were first married all those years ago, marriage exposed things in me I didn't even know were there. Some of those were good and some of those were bad. Right, I, I learned that I had the capacity to love another human being in a way that I never thought was possible. I also learned that I was selfish and prideful, and and God used those things to grow me. and And you know, marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, and it's it's one of the ways that God sanctifies us. Right? And and so the, what what sometimes shows up as tension and strife in the home is actually God exposing things in our hearts that we need to change and grow. It's one of the Moses. I I guarantee you learned things in marriage he could have never learned anywhere else by being a husband. And then he had a son. If marriage is a magnifying glass. Kids are an electron microscope. <laughs> Once I felt pretty good about where I was in my marriage, God gave me children. And they discovered a whole nother level of things that I had no idea existed. Again, a capacity to love in a way that I didn't think was possible and, and emotions that I didn't even know how to process. And yet, again, I learned how selfish I was, and how impatient I was, and how quick I was to anger. Things that I really didn't have, I uh, think I had a, a lot of problem with. God used my children. Again, once I learned to see them as a sanctifying engine <laughs> uh, that God was using, um, you know, I learned that they they were actually benefiting me by showing me God was using them to show me where I needed to grow even as I was trying to help them grow so don't, don't miss the opportunity if you are married if you have children don't miss the opportunity that when you get frustrated or angry or stressed that is an opportunity for you to learn and you to grow And you to change. God was preparing Moses even through these things. God preserves and prepares his people to accomplish his purpose. If we've been reading through this and you've thought that some of this, uh, the the life of Moses here, kind of sounds a little bit familiar... Uh, Let's let, look at, look at uh, Exodus 2 here, just the things of, uh, in the life of Moses that we see. See if these sound a little bit familiar to you. He was born into a time of darkness and despair. He was condemned to die at birth. He had a miraculous deliverance. He had this dual nature that uniquely prepared him. He left royalty to be with his people. He was rejected by his own people and yet became deliverer of his people. Does that sound like somebody else? If you think that sounds like Jesus, it is not wrong for us to make that comparison. I think sometimes we need to be careful with symbology in the Old Testament. In this case, we don't have to worry about that because Moses himself pointed forward to Jesus. And we don't have to guess if he was talking about Jesus because the Apostle Peter affirms it in Acts chapter 3 soon after Pentecost, and he said, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And he goes on to say, if you do not listen to him, you will be destroyed. Hebrews 3 compares Jesus to Moses. Jesus is the better Moses. It says in verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Jesus is the final deliverer. Born into a time of darkness after 400 years where the people thought God had forgotten them when they were under the rule of the Romans. He was condemned to die at birth by Herod. He was miraculously delivered. He had this unique dual nature Fully God, fully man. And he is the only one that could meet the perfect standard of the law as a man and yet meet God's divine requirements as as being divine. He left heaven to be with his people. He was rejected by his people and yet he was their deliverer. if you don't know Jesus this morning if you're still trusting in your own works in your own religion as Chad was saying hoping that you know, you've done enough well God's standard is perfection and if you've broken one law you've broken them all Jesus said and so there's no amount of good works that are going to bridge that gap That's a fool's errand. And that's what religion will lead us to. God knew that. Right? So he came to us. And he sent his son to bridge this gap, to live a perfect life of righteousness so that his sacrifice would be acceptable to God. And so that we, and all who believe, can be forgiven I'd, I'd say along with Moses listen to him or be destroyed don't reject him like the people of Israel did and say who made you ruler and judge over me who are you to say that Jesus is the only way If you are a believer in Jesus this morning, we face the battle every day to live with Christ as our Lord, as our ruler, as our judge. In fact, every act of sin or disobedience in our lives is us rejecting God's Lordship, Jesus' Lordship of my life. In effect, when I'm sinning, I'm saying, who made you ruler and judge over me? I know the Bible says this, but... And if the pattern of my life, or the pattern of your life is disobedience, rejection of Jesus' lordship of your life, the Apostle Paul would say, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Because obedience is the fruit of a changed life. Let me close with this thought. We talked about life stories at the beginning. I actually recently read a life story of an interesting man named Ted Vegeta, Fujita. He was a Japanese man uh, living in a, in a town called Kukuru in uh, 1945, which in Japan, you realize, that was still part of World War II. And uh, he's living in Kokoru. And if you've never heard of Kokoru, you're not alone. It's a very little known city unless you're really a history buff. And the reason it's little known is because of a bank of clouds and a little bit of smoke that was covering the city and obscuring the city on an August morning in 1945 so that the plane flying overhead could not see its primary target. And since Kokoro was obscured, it went to its secondary target, which I'm pretty sure you've heard of, Nagasaki, where the second atomic bomb was dropped with unthinkable destruction, effectively ending World War II, in the, at least in the Pacific conflict. Mr. Fujita was actually a scientist, and uh, so they asked him to go to Nagasaki and to investigate uh, the destruction that happened there. And he did, and, and what he learned from that destruction, they were trying to understand what made this bomb so powerful and destructive, and what he learned from the patterns of destruction there would become the basis for his research for the rest of his life. His area of expertise was actually meteorology, and uh, what he saw there actually informed his research on the, the understanding and prevention of tornadoes. And that led him to the United States in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and um, he just worked tirelessly to understand, and if there was any, any um, tornado outbreak in the United States, he would be there soon after to study it, including uh, the ones in Xenia, Ohio, across the border in the 70s, if you remember that. That was actually a, a critical point, learning point for him. And uh, he, he actually earned the name over those years of Mr. Tornado, became the foremost expert, saved countless lives through the prevention and prediction of the destruction of tornadoes. And he's actually why we categorize them as F1 to F5, that's the Fujita scale. And I find all of that interesting but the most interesting part of his story was they asked him, what, what drives you? I mean, it's just almost an inhuman amount of detail and effort he put into his research. So what drives you? And he said I, he, he, never, he never lost sight of the fact that he was spared. His life was spared by nothing of his own doing. He had been given a second chance at life. He believed he believed that he had been saved for a purpose and he was not going to let that second chance go to waste and that drove him that that gave him purpose for the rest of his life I wonder if Moses had a similar reaction to his miraculous deliverance did that give him purpose in his desire to deliver the people of Israel I don't know but maybe you hear those stories and you think, you know, I don't have a dramatic miraculous story like they do. I mean, those are those are fun to listen to, but again, nobody wants to hear my story. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I want to challenge that a little bit. As Toby said this morning, you were born without hope. Born into sin under the sentence of death under the wrath of God. No hope. No, no hope to ever bridge the gap between you and God. No hope of salvation. No hope of forgiveness. No hope of mercy. But God, right? Through the power of the gospel, you heard the gospel and the spirit. used that to open your eyes and your ears, which were blind and deaf to the things of God, so that you could respond in faith and repentance to the gospel. And you were, you were brought from death to life. You were delivered from something far worse than the Nile River or even Nagasaki. You were delivered from the eternal judgment under the wrath of God. That is a miraculous story of deliverance. That is a story You need to tell to your children over and over, to your family, to your friends, to your coworkers, to your neighbors. That's a story we need to keep telling to ourselves, right? Reminding ourselves constantly of the miraculous deliverance and grace and mercy that I have received from God. And be reminded once again that God preserves and prepares his people For his purpose. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your deliverance. We didn't deserve it, we didn't ask for it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. May we never lose sight of how amazing and miraculous that is. May that give us a desire to share that with others, to live our lives with the purpose that we have been spared and given a second chance and born again. May we not waste that. May we live a life worthy of that calling this week. God, convict us, challenge us, change us, encourage us with these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.